Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, and today we have Curtis McGiffin, as always, and Jim Petrowski, as always. And uh, we're going to talk about an article that we wrote uh, that del- deals with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of course. The 6th of August was the anniversary of Hiroshima, and today, the 9th, is the anniversary of Nagasaki, the bombing, the atomic bombings of those two cities at the end of World War II. Adam, Jim. Adam, I have a question early, early on here. Sure, so sure, So you're sure. calling it Hiroshima, and I've always called it Hiroshima. So who's right, who's wrong, tomato, tomato? Well, I, you know, it's... I hate to sort of digress this this early into the show, but I, I you know, I, I worked at Sinkus Navier in London, which was naval headquarters for, for Europe, and I worked with a, a gal, Anne Fellingham, and she went to, uh, you know, went to Las Vegas once, and they asked her if she wanted to take home her, you know, leftovers, and they would bring her some aluminum foil, and she said, it, you, you mean aluminum? And they said, no, 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 aluminum. And her response was, we invented the language. It's aluminum. And so I guess, you know, it's, uh, you know, how you pronounce it. You know, I as a Texan would say Hiroshima. And so I'll leave it up to you as an Ohioan to say, to pronounce it however you want. So. uh, Well, thank you. I just want to make sure our listeners were straight on that. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's an, it's an anniversary. Uh, you know, it's the two, only two examples of the use of the atomic bomb and of nuclear weapons uh, in anger. Of course, we've had more than a thousand nuclear weapons tests over the last 70 plus years. And so we thought we would talk about an article that myself and Curtis and Steve Simbala wrote for Real Clear Defense. The article was called Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Correcting the Record. And we talk about some of the misnomers that are very popular uh, when it comes to any discussion of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the use of the atomic weapon in those two instances. So, Curtis, let me kick it over to you to sort of lay out the argument that was made in the article. So thank you, Adam, and appreciate seeing you all again. And um, the idea here, uh, what we see in the August 6th and August 9th anniversaries um, every every year, if you will, is, um, of course, the uh, you know, the somber remembrances of, of the dropping of the two atomic atomic bombs. And um, and we'll tend to see uh, out in the public discourse uh, sort of the opportunity to um, uh, attack or downplay the value of nuclear weapons and uh, and the, the peace that that it brings. And and this year is no different. 
Uh, we've seen numerous articles from, you know, the, the mayor of Hiroshima and, you know, sort of saying that we need to stop the idea of nuclear deterrence and these sorts of things. And so it presents itself to be a very opportune time to talk about um, uh, the roughly 120,000 uh, Japanese uh, citizens that were killed in, in the initial attacks uh, of the dropping of the atomic bombs. Our article sort of tries to look at the bigger picture, if you will. It's certainly not downplaying the, the tragic loss um, of war. Uh, but what we try to take a look at, I think, in our article pretty fairly is we try to look at the reasons why. And I think there's a lot of of um, red herrings out there that um, perhaps um, we didn't have to, to drop the atomic bombs, that we were already winning the war, or that the Soviets had just declared war on Japan and therefore uh, that's why they... Uh, they would have surrendered. They would have surrendered soon, um, and uh, and I don't I don't really think history would 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 bear that out. And you add in, of course, the Oppenheimer film, uh, which I confess I, I have not seen and probably won't. I just don't have the three and a half hours or the bladder to sit through it. But I would say that that um, you know we're all familiar enough with with the topic and. Uh, and Jim probably knew Oppenheimer at some point in his life <laughs> uh, that uh, that we, we certainly wow. uh, have, have an idea here. What I find interesting that we, we, we really didn't get into in the article. Uh, well, let me I'll say that for later. What I think we talked about in the article, though, that is particularly interesting was, uh, you know, we're all bounded by the by the rationality of the events and what's going on and the estimates of what was going to have to happen if we didn't do the atomic bombs. The Wall Street Journal uh, put out an editorial over the weekend called uh, Could the U.S. Have Ended World War II with a Demonstration Bomb? So it's kind of a, another option that could have been done. And I think the Wall Street Journal piece does an excellent I uh, uh, does an excellent job of sort of explaining why that couldn't why that wouldn't have worked and and i think that the, the case in point is uh and and we'll talk i'd like to talk again about this later in the podcast but we've been firebombing japan for months before august 6th and 9th and it didn't bring them to to the surrender uh to the negotiating table we dropped one atomic bomb and it didn't terminate the war um and uh and and so and of course, the bloody battle of Okinawa um, sort of lended the idea to the estimators that the U.S. was probably going to lose a million Americans in an invasion of the homeland of Japan, and that the Japanese might lose as many as 10 million in the fight that would go on afterwards. And, uh, and I think that those numbers were too much. They were just too much to bear out when you have the capability to have a shocking weapon to force uh, to force an end and a termination of this war, um, and and uh, and I believe, and I think the authors of this piece believed that uh, it was in fact the uh, the two atomic bombs and the threat of a third that uh, ended this war and saved, in my opinion, in our opinion, millions of lives. You mentioned uh, 
you know, there's the Wall Street Journal piece that was one written by Evan Thomas. And just for the listeners, Evan Thomas has a new book called The Road to Surrender, which is about, you know, sort of the final stages of, of the war against Japan. Because, you know, at, at this point, the, you know, the Nazis had surrendered, what, May 7th, I think. And so these last few months were purely a fight with Japan. And so Evan Thomas, you know, it's a brand new book. It's just out, writes a really compelling and interesting book that talks about just how unwilling. And this is, you know, uh, I was reading, there's an article in, it's uh, it's called Jap- Jacobin, like the Jacobin Revolution, Jacobin Magazine, which is a magazine of socialist ideas. And the magazine, there's an article written by a, a journalist named Taylor Noakes or Noaks. No, at any rate. And he basically says, he makes the argument that, you know, we dropped the bomb, you know, purely, you know, with the focus on the Soviet Union. And we wanted to signal and intimidate the Soviets, and we didn't really have to. And the Japanese were already defeated. And it's interesting for the disarmament community um, and for socialists like Jacobin Magazine to make these kinds of arguments because they always underrepresent the capability and the will of adversaries. And that's part of a sort of a systemic thing that they do is they always say, well, the Soviets aren't that bad. I mean, how many, during go back to the Cold War for those that were around, how many times were we told that the Soviets really don't want to take over the world and they really don't want to, and they're not that bad. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when the Soviet Union fell and the Soviet troops pulled out of East Germany and they pulled out of Berlin, the KGB headquarters, they left all their documents in the KGB headquarters. And so West German scholars and intelligence officials went through the KGB headquarters and got the war plan from the, you know, the Soviet war plan and that Soviet war plan, we thought they would attack conventionally. But what we found out was that they were going to, in the very opening day of any war against the West, they were going to nuke the four largest cities in Germany. They were going to escalate to de-escalate and force, you know, compel the West NATO uh, to capitulate. And so I, I guess part of this, you know, my argument is, is that all of these articles that say, Oh, we didn't need to do it. We just, the U S just did it you know, to make sure the Soviets didn't get involved and to intimidate the Soviets. That argument, it doesn't bear scrutiny and it doesn't, you know, it's part of a persistent disinformation campaign to try to dismiss the legitimacy of the use of nuclear weapons. I understand why the Japanese don't like it because they were on the receiving end. Sure. Now, and now, granted, they've never apologized to the Koreans. They've never apologized to the Chinese for, you know, the rape of Nanking or what happened in Manchuria or, you know, what they did to prisoners in the Bataan Death March or anything else. So my empathy for the Chinese or for the Japanese and Hiroshima and Nagasaki is, is not very high. It was a war and war sucks. But I, yeah, I, I want to... 
go for it. I'm sorry. I want to add to that real quick. So in, in LeMay's uh, biography by, uh, by Warren Kozak, um, there's a, a short portion in here that talks about in any given month in the first half of 1945, upwards of 250,000 Asians were dying at the hands of the Japanese. A quarter of a million lives every 30 days. In all, more than 15 million Chinese, Koreans, and Filipinos died in a lesser-known holocaust of World War II. The slaughter only came to a halt when the Japanese were forced to surrender and the Imperial Army came home. This is a this is sort of the untold um, uh, loss. Yeah, thank you. The untold loss of what was going on that I don't think Americans in the West even knew was going on at the time it was going on. And and, and what what's ironic is they say saved. that they say you know I've heard so many arguments that you know condemning the use of the atomic bombs that say well this was done out of American white supremacy and racism, but in reality by virtue of of doing this, we saved lots and lots and lots of non-white Asian lives. And, the, you know, they would then retort, they would say, well, you know, the, the Japanese were beat. Well, the Japanese had more than a million troops in China, Korea, all over, you know, uh, Asia that were still there, had not surrendered, and were still putting up resistance before the atomic bombs were dropped. So the, this idea that the Japanese were defeated and were, you know, waving the white flag, that's just not true. Jim, did you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I appreciate it. Yeah. First of all, I agree with you. War is hell. And one of the things that, uh, I, you know, make sure our listeners understand our objective here is to preclude, to, to stop wars from occurring. And that piece, you know, comes from, you know, at, we see that nuclear weapons play a major role in wars like this occurring. And in preparation for this, and I do this every year when we get uh, to this this season, is I go back and I re I rewatch the World War Two, uh, the ten part series by the History Channel on World War Two, and it goes from everything from the start of the war and all the. I, I get enamored sometimes, you know, the fact that we created radar and the aircraft advances and, and uh, our ability to, to com communicate and cryptology and everything else. But it ends, of course, with the nuclear weapons uh, being used in Japan. And so it leads you to this. And you see what Curtis was talking about, the massive amount of carnage that was going on in Asia at the time, as there's an expansionist uh, Japan at the time, uh, that is you know, basically enslaving and killing uh, people, both being horrible things that were happening. Now, um, the other piece that I, I just got done watching actually two days ago was the bombing of Dresden. And it made me think about, you know, what, you know, you see the bombing of Dresden and, you know, it's over a three day period of time and even the bombing of the firebombing of Tokyo. And then you compare that to Hiroshima and, and or Hiroshima, as you say, Adam. Uh, and and um, the interesting thing is what makes the difference in these two? Because, you know, they're they're psychological 
There are moral differences. There are moral, uh, major moral differences. And one of the things that it caused me to do is I actually went out and read a book. It's called The Trolley Problem. It's a, it's a philosophy book. And it's about, uh, without getting into boring our readers, but it's about the, the, the psychology of moral, morally deciding on death. And what's interesting, of course, is as if deaths occur one at a time and slowly over time, people become used to it. And one of the last things we want to do is become used to and accept death, you know, by, you know, by war over time. You think of Europe at the time, I mean, by the time you're done watching that 10 part series from history channel, it's like how in Europe were people just living with all this death and carnage all the time, they've got used to it, sadly. I mean, it's not, it's just a psychological, you know, way of, of dealing with it. Yet the nuclear bombs were such a shock and that shock of instantaneous death caused people to not be used to it and say, back up. And I've always questioned, as Curtis pointed out, it's not why did we apply the nuclear weapons in the first place, but you look at the resilience of the Japanese after the first bomb was dropped. Why? I mean, at that point, it was like, I'm done. We don't have such a thing at this time. And in fact, that's the whole point of nuclear deterrence, right? No one wants that. And everyone capitulates. That's the expectation. It's sort of the thought process that needs to go into the deterrence aspect of this. So that was my takeaway in reading the factual components of your article and looking at the historical components around it to say, why do we do this? So that's my, my piece here, Adam. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting you bring bring up Japanese discussion and this is a this is a point that both Evan Thomas and there is a there's another book that's called um I'm thinking about it, uh, Prompt and Utter Destruction. Prompt mm-hmm. and Utter Destruction. And it's a book that examines the decision to drop the nuclear weapon and it they both look at and look at the diaries of the members of the council. What was, I'm drawing a blank. What was it called? The council for the Supreme council for the direction of the war. That's what it was called. That was the Japanese leadership that managed the war. And there was significant, significant, even, you know, immediately before and immediately after the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, if you prefer, uh, to there, you know, to to continue the fight, to continue the fight, and you know it's well documented in those diaries, and it was really only after the second bomb was dropped that Emperor Hirohito actually stepped in because he was largely yes. non. He he didn't. He would listen, but he didn't give his opinion and debate. He, he didn't do that, but he stepped in afterwards and said, we need to capitulate. And it, it's very clear how the decision-making was taking place. And in fact, upon hearing that uh, the emperor wanted to capitulate, there was, you know, there was an attempted coup within the Japanese army and the coup want of younger officers. It was younger officers that wanted to continue the fight and did not want to capitulate. So the idea that the, the Japanese, you know, were willing to surrender and it was just our 
you know, our desire to keep the Soviets out and it was our desire to only allow them to surrender if, you know, if it was unconditional, you know, so let me, let me just take, make two points. Number one, the Soviets only uh, declared war on the Japanese on August 8th. They saw what happened at Hiroshima and they said, we better get involved if we're going to have any influence on what happens after the war. Otherwise, they were not going to get involved. They were willing to let the U.S. and Japan bleed each other. And Adam, in, in some ways, that's a that, if you think about that, that was a, a, a strategic decision, you know, thinking from the Soviet standpoint, a smart strategic decision at that point. It was. You know, it we, makes sense. We, it was because we were already disagreeing over what was going to happen in in yes. Europe. So, and then secondly, there is within the diaries of the senior Japanese leaders, there was discussion of what kind of surrender would be possible and their view of what kind of surrender would be possible. It would be that there would be no occupation troops, none whatsoever that Japan would disarm its own self without intervention from the United States and that uh, the emperor would stay on the throne and that any war crimes tribunals would be conducted by the Japanese and all decisions would be carried out and executed by the Japanese. So if you think back in many respects, those are almost the exact same conditions that Germany faced in World War I. Germany was not occupied. Germany was disarmed itself. Um, you know, there were no war crimes tribunals. And, and so if you're an American, you're saying, wait a second, this kind of decision is how we got to World War II and to the, you know, 70 million that were lost here. So it was just not feasible, but that's what the Japanese wanted. So I, I want to add just a couple of other thoughts here. And some of these, you know, we, we might've known about during the war at the time, and maybe some of them we, we knew after, but doesn't change the risk. You know, one of the things that went into the calculation of why we, why we couldn't afford to do a, an invasion, a conventional military invasion of the homeland of Japan was the uh, was the idea of of how brutal the war was becoming towards the end on the germany side after the battle of the bulge the germans began to really slow down the war really was terminating very quickly the will to fight was was going away but towards the end of japan as we got closer to mainland japan the will to fight increased it got worse and in fact just a couple of stats here um that on tarawa 997 of the Japanese people chose death over surrender. Um, on the Marshall Islands, it was 98.5%. And on Saipan, it was 97%. So this, this death mentality that I must fight to the death um, uh, was, was really becoming quite apparent to the U.S. In, in the Battle of Okinawa, 50% of the civilian population of Okinawa chose death over uh, being conquered uh, by the Allies. And this was something that I think was very much in the mindset of the American strategists and planners as they were trying to figure out how they were going to to save lives 
um, and end this war at the same time. Something else I want to bring up very quickly from um, from the book um, The Bomb by uh, Tillman. Um, a lot of people didn't know, know about this, but the Japanese had their own nuclear program. And in 1940, it was fledgling. And by 1945, they had actually produced rice-sized crystals of uranium hexafluoride. They were working their way there. But you know what ended it? It was the firebombing of Tokyo by LeMay. It destroyed the whole effort, all of the laboratories and, and all of those things. And it basically stopped any nuclear or I should say atomic capabilities that the Japanese were trying uh, trying to acquire at the time. I found that to be uh, quite interesting. And again, from the book here, um, there were several uh, Los Alamos scientists who were on Tinian at the time who knew the, the Japanese scientists who had studied with them, who was leading um, their, their program. Um, his name was, um, if, I can re- if I can pronounce it here, they called it the N Project. Um, I'm sorry, it, it escapes me at the moment. Um, but anyway, in the interest of time, um, they took the time uh, when they were dropping pumpkins, which were the, these practice bombs um, that, would, that looked like the fat man uh, bomb. Um, these three scientists put a letter in one of them to this specific Japanese scientist, um, uh, Ryoki, Ryochi Sagan, 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 Sagni. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Uh, but anyway, they, they wrote this letter to him and they said, uh, they asked him, they urged him to use his influence to quote, as a reputable nuclear physicist to convince the Japanese general staff of the terrible consequences which will be suffered by your people if you continue the war. And unless Japan surrenders at once, this rain of atomic bombs will increase uh, manyfold in fury. With best regards. <laughs> well, this bomb and this note was actually found. Um, the canister was dropped on August 9th, and it was recovered by Japanese naval intelligence, and it was never turned over to the professor until after the war. Uh, so I thought it was interesting uh, to, to, to note how that was working out. One last thing to bring up here. Um, you know, we talk about, uh, or, or the, there's quite the reputation of the brutal LeMay and the, the, the massive amounts of death that was caused by the firebombings of Tokyo and many other cities. You know, he literally took a world almanac and went down the list of cities by population. And um, the estimate is that about 120,000 were killed by the atomic bombs, but 213,000 were killed by napalm. And in fact, he he had to stop in the month of March because he'd run out of napalm. And uh, and they were destroying miles, square miles, many, many more square miles. And of course, these bombs, bombing raids were hundreds of bombers at once. This was a massive, massive effort. And this did not sway. And then there was, prior to the dropping of the atomic bomb, um, they dropped leaflets. Uh, Many, many leaflets were dropped, hundreds of thousands of leaflets. And they had written some, some, you know, standard sort of government propagandic, U.S. government propagandic uh, efforts. And LeMay didn't like it, so he rewrote them. (laughs) Here's what he wrote, again, from uh, LeMay's biography here. On one side of the leaflet, it would say, civilians, evacuated once. But on the other side, it says uh, these leaflets 
are being dropped to notify you that your city has been listed for destruction by our powerful Air Force. The bombing will begin within 72 hours. This advance notice will give your military authorities ample time to take necessary defensive measures to protect you from our inevitable attack. Watch and see how powerless they are to protect you. Systematic destruction of your city after city of city after city will continue as long as you blindly follow your military leaders whose blunders have placed you on the very brink of oblivion. It is your responsibility to overthrow the military government and now and to save what is left of your beautiful country. In the meanwhile, we urge all civilians to evacuate at once. So I think there was a lot of effort to try to save as many lives as we could, right? And we used a lot of conventional weapons that were horrible, horrible and destructive, especially to cities made of wood and paper. And, and so but that, you know, war is hell, as you say, Jim. And, and this is a, a terrible, terrible thing that goes on. And this is where I think the value of nuclear deterrence and the prevention of massive kinds of wars like this, this total war, um, and the lives saved by not having a third world war uh, pays off. I'll stop there for any commentary. Well, the only thing I would say is, you know, as we look back on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the lesson that I think we should learn from it is that by virtue of the destructive power that was visible and the memory of it, we have gone more than seven decades unprecedented by all accounts, the United States and the Soviet Union should have fought a major war in both Asia and Europe that would have cost tens of millions of lives. And that war was averted. And we can only hope that the war, you know, that may potentially come between the United States and China, we can hope that nuclear weapons avert that war as well. And to me, the lesson that could be learned is that uh, war with nuclear weapons is horrendous and should therefore never be fought. Yeah, Adam, thanks. Uh, and Curtis, thanks. I think this is, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, looking at this, you know, moving up a little bit even higher from that and saying history in general, you know, as we as we mark these years uh, that pass, and we see what's happened in the past. And there's a lot of armchair quarterbacking, et cetera. But I think what's important is to see what what happened, how it could be prevented, and the results of that, as you just mentioned, Adam. And I think that's the, the important piece to, to take away as we look at these. Tremendous amount of, um, you know, and, and, and Curtis, you talked about you know, using firebombing, but we'd even talk about the you know, fact that Japan is on an island and they could have very well been, you know, we could have uh, launched a, a, a naval blockade and starved people to death. And, uh, you know, it, there are so many other ways in which people die. And again, I'm not advocating for, you know, wanting to kill people, but the reality is, you have to take a stance and you have to use that stance to be able to effectively control the, you know, control the deaths that are going on around you and maintaining your way of life, which is what we were preserving through all of this and many other countries 
uh, lives and their and their ways of life. So I think this is an excellent time for anyone to go back and look at history. And there's a lot of historians that have written many things. I always, when, whenever I think about this event itself, you know, it brings me back to the question and maybe something we'll, ans- we'll ask ourselves somewhere else. Because I always ask about weapons of mass destruction and say, what is the difference between nuclear, chemical, biological, and huge firebombing? And it, nuclear has just its own permanent place. And in my view, it's similar to Adams and Curtis's, I'm sure. And that is that in my view, it's such an instantaneous death and destruction that we never want to return to that. So, yeah, let, let me add to that, Jim and, and Adam, both found, and really solid, fantastic observations there. Up until August 6th and 9th, if you count that sort of three-day window as a line, you know, the nuclear age sort of began after August 9th. But prior to August 6th, we were not in a nuclear age. We were in the conventional age. We've seen a world without nuclear weapons from August 6th to the left on the calendar. It's nasty and brutish and brutal and deadly and destructive. I just went over some of the numbers in one era. We're not even talking about Europe. World War One, and everything in between. And so I, w- I would argue that a world without nuclear weapons is maybe something we don't want uh, in, in that sense. Let me, add, let me add one thing here. Emperor Hirohito, who was allowed to remain on the throne, uh, you know, he lived until 1989. He passed away in 1989. He watched his country not only recover from World War II, but rise to be the second most powerful economic nation in the world at the time of his death. And, and the Japanese became one of our closest allies and remain so today. Closest allies, closest friends. We share technology and culture and, uh, and, and everything in between economies. And, uh, and, and so I, I think what we, you know, no matter how bad the past was, the present is wonderful between the Japanese, the United States, Japanese, and the rest of the world. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I know there's still wounds that need to be healed uh, and, and that's for the Japanese to handle. But I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm out there saying uh, that, that uh, I, I love the Japanese culture, uh, uh, you know, and uh, I, I think that uh, uh, I, I greatly value the alliance and the relationship and the friendship that the Japanese and the Americans share. I look forward to that continuing for a very long time uh, as we look forward to new challenges. The Japanese live in a very nasty neighborhood. Nuclear weapons in China, nuclear weapons in Russia, nuclear weapons in North Korea. Um, Taiwan is more or less a part of the Japanese archipelago. There's real challenges that the Japanese are going to have to look forward to in the future. And they're going to need all the help they can get. And, um, and so, um, again, history is what it was. The present is to, is, is what it is. And I think our future looks good in that regard. Uh, and so again, thanks guys for the, your observations on that. All right. Well, thanks Curtis. Thanks Jim. Uh, it was a important but somber discussion. And as always, 
we remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.